You know, when you Google for the Constitution, like, I, I don't have a Constitution app. I don't have it handy. I don't walk around with the printed Constitution in, like, my jacket pocket. Nor do I. I'm like, not a senator. Um, or con law prof. Con law profs often do that, I think. Uh, really? So I, so I don't do that. And so I always end up just Googling, like, Constitution. Right. And usually it refers you, like, the first five hits are always, like, wacko sites. <laughs> have you noticed this? <laughs> no, I haven't because I haven't ever done this. I, what I do when I want a legal source is I go to the Legal Information Institute website at Cornell University because it's such a great site. And if folks don't know about that, that really is a wonderful, wonderful, uh, openly accessible resource. And again, it's the Legal Information Institute at the at Cornell Law School. Their law library runs that. And it has just awesome stuff like, for example, the U.S. Constitution. Somebody read you this constitutional text that the Noel Cannon case was interpreting. Cool. Um, boy, I almost need bifocals. It's getting yeah. sad. Yeah, I use reading glasses now. It's, it is sad. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. So... Can you read it one more time, please? Yeah, the president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next sessions. Next session, not sessions. So, uh, you know, the, the idea here is that the president uh, is given authority here to do something different than normal advice and consent. You normally want to appoint a new head of a, uh, of a cabinet agency uh, and you, you pass the name along to the Senate. The person goes and glad hands with a bunch of senators. Um, people extract concessions and eventually maybe the Senate will... Uh, will we'll appoint, will we'll confirm the nominee in, in an up or down vote. Um, but this gives the power to the president to appoint someone outside of that process, if they do so, during the recess of the Senate. And what's at issue in the Noel Cannon case, there are several things that were at issue. One, um, the Constitution says that the president has the power to fill up vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate. So the problem is, first of all, what is a recess of the Senate? Yeah, um, when, is it, when is it actually in recess? Is this just the time between sessions? Or is this any time they go out of town and adjourn? Um, what happens if they uh, are, are not around, but they have pro forma sessions where one senator stays behind and just gavels them in without doing any business and gavels out? So Indeed, on that, last, uh, yeah. on that last uh, point... Uh, a pro forma session where a senator walks in, gavels them in, gavels them out. One might ask the further question, why would they engage in such a behavior? And it could turn out that the reason they're engaging in that behavior is to prevent the president's use of the authority to appoint someone during a recess. Yeah, and that's exactly why they're doing it. Um, and so, Which might influence your thinking about whether or not it constituted an actual session. Right, right. And the, so the other issue here is whether the vacancies, you know, it says for all vacancies that, that may happen during the recess. And so what happens if there's a vacancy? Uh, the Senate, as it is prone to do, does nothing on this vacancy, uh, on, the, uh, on the nomination the president puts forward for months. Then the Senate goes out of town slash adjourns slash does this ambiguous thing, which may or may not be a recess. And let's also assume that the vacancy first occurred while the Senate was in session, 
Yeah, that's, that's in, what I have in mind. That's and in session in, in a way that would meet everybody's definition for being in session. Yeah, that's what I have in mind. And, and so the question is, uh, there's a vacancy when the Senate is not in session, if we assume that, they're, that they are in recess, whatever that means. Can the president appoint someone under this, under this power then? The vacancy is continuing to happen, but it says for vacancies that may happen during the recess. Right, so it didn't, the vacancy didn't start its existence, if you think of the vacancy as a thing in itself. Right. It doesn't right. start its existence during the recess. It started while they were still in session. So should right. that count as a vacancy he could fill by use of this power that's separate and apart from the routine way of nominating someone and having the Senate uh, consent or not? Yeah, so there's several questions here. The one is the ability of the president to appoint uh, under this power um, uh, someone for a spot which became vacant when this Senate was clearly not in recess. Um, secondly, what does it mean for the Senate to be in recess? Um, when can you appoint, you know, if they say that they're not in recess, are they not in recess? Who gets to decide that question? Uh, and then really the bigger question here is this kind of battle between um, what the text maybe seems to say or what some textual interpretation of it would be versus a, a, a pretty long-standing practice. And of course, once you get into history, just like getting into text, you get into debates that you, might, you may not have anticipated. Right. And so for decades and decades now, there have been uh, uses by the president of this recess appointment in ways meant to overcome congressional obstinacy. Right. So this is a, basically, you can think of the recess appointment as kind of a weapon the president has. The president would rather, I guess, appoint people under the normal uh, procedures. Um, but if you can't do that, a recessed appointment maybe is the next best thing. And the fact that the president has that power gives the president some leverage. So over the decades, uh, and depending on how you look at it, maybe even centuries, maybe even George Washington, uh, anyway, that the oral argument and in the briefs, there are all kinds of disputes over when this power was used, under what circumstances. So I'm not going to get into it. I'm no expert on that. Uh, but it's pretty clear that this has become one of the points of leverage that the president has in this game that the president and the Senate play. And, and, it's, a, and it's especially a game in a, in a period where the president is of a party that is not overwhelmingly represented in the Senate as a body. Right. I mean, it wouldn't matter... I don't know if this has ever been true, but it wouldn't matter in a case where one imagines. It wouldn't matter in a case where the president uh, were of the same party as uh, 90% of the senators. Presumably in that context, which again has may never have occurred. It may have never been the case in U.S. history. I, I just don't know. Um, but presumably in such a case, in such a time, uh, the president would not have very much trouble uh, getting his nominations voted yay or nay uh, without a lot of falderall. Nice word. Falderall? Mm -hmm. You know, you have to imagine, if you set up this game, which looks like a game of chicken almost, uh, it seems to have been set up with, with, it, with in mind that the failure to have an appointee of a major agency um, is a cost, Right. But we have increasingly in the Senate, some folks at least, who don't think it's a cost not to have major portions of the government functioning. And that leads to a kind of a problematic circumstance. You know, where Yeah, and the provision, of course, isn't, isn't limited to use for uh, 
vacancies in offices, executive positions that are major in the way that you you just postulated, no, right? And, and it's judges too. For, true. So, for example, there have been justices of the Supreme Court who began their Supreme Court careers as uh, uh, recess right? appointments. Is that right? Absolutely. Huh. Earl Warren is one of them. I think William Brennan is another. Wow. Uh, and I'm and I don't think they're the only two. Hmm. We could look that up, but uh, yeah, there's more than and and even below the Supreme Court, of course, there could be recess appointments in other Article Three courts as well. Well, the, so the basic problem here is is that that backdrop where this has been used a lot. So there's a history of use. Uh, in a particular way, although it was claimed here that because that because this appointment was made during a pro forma session, uh, um, during um, uh, that in in fact that hadn't been done an appointment you know an appointment when when the Senate claims to be in session. So this is maybe. But the president different. says it isn't. Yeah, because it's clearly pro forma, meant to defeat the use of this power, right? Um, and. So there is that, right? So we have a history of use. We have a history of, of, of this being a point of leverage. On the, on the other hand, we have the text, uh, which, right. which seems to set, you know, we, we're going to get into debates about what particular words mean. Yep. Right? And then we have a kind of more, uh, I would say, less kind of textualist but more purposivist approach to the Constitution, which would say, as, as uh, I think Kagan and others said during the oral argument, we kind of know why this is here because it used to be Congress would kind of finish up its business and ride off on horseback for months at a time <laughs> and there would be no one, no one there. And if, and if the secretary of war, uh, died two weeks later, right. um, it would take a long time to get the Senate back together again. You know, it was not a trivial thing to get the band back together again to, to start doing its business. <laughs> and so this was a very practical, the claim is this was a very practical, uh, uh, power given to make sure that that the um, government could continue its work despite long congressional absences. And yeah. these days, that's not really necessary anymore. Where the the band can get back together within twenty four hours. Of course, it's interesting that the language of the Constitution on this in this provision is is not actually written uh, directly in terms of that uh, the exigencies of delay. And uh, there are other parts of the Constitution where Congress seems to be able to frame language, choose language that addresses the exigency directly. So, for example, uh, in the Fourth Amendment, which is not part of the original Constitution, but was uh, added to it shortly thereafter, um, it refers to unreasonable searches. So uh, the Congress of the day, the framers of the day, were certainly capable of writing provisions that that would address something in those terms. So, for example, you can imagine an alternative recess appointment power that the power has the president, uh, excuse me, the president has the power uh, to uh, uh, fill a vacancy uh, in a case where uh, Senate consideration would be unreasonably delayed. And it doesn't say that. Right. It, it actually tries to be crisper in one respect by saying that it no the the power relates to the Senate's not being in session. Uh, so it would seem to cover uh, 
let's let's assume everything in favor of the people who want the power to be as narrow as possible. Yeah, I mean, okay, fun- so can I finish the point? Just to, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to let's assume for a moment, uh, again, in favor of the people who want it to be as narrow as possible. Imagine the circumstance where uh, the Senate adjourned uh, an hour ago, the Secretary of Defense dies of a brain aneurysm, and an hour later, the president appoints a successor. Uh, so the Senate's been out of session for all of two hours. Even in 1789, that is not a situation where it would have been hard to get the band back together. No, that's right. And, and oral argument, I mean, this was an argument about, about the may happen language that the, uh, for vacancies that may happen when Congress is out of session. That a reason to think of the may happen language as allowing for appointments of vacancy uh, to vacancies that occur uh, even during the congressional session is imagine a vacancy happens in some cabinet office um, a week before Congress is set to adjourn and it's going to you know go off on trains and horseback. Um, there just may not be time really to deal with that problem, and so the Constitution has given the president the power to make the appointment, which will last until the end of the next session, so that when Congress does come back into town and starts right. doing its work again, it has the whole session to deal with the appointment that will Absolutely. come thereafter. So it, it does seem designed to, to, deal with, to deal with the problem of Congress's long absences, the, the logistics of a Congress which will be there for a short period, or not necessarily short, but will be there for a period and then will be gone for a period. And we want the government to be able to continue to function when Congress is gone, even if the vacancies uh, occur, maybe even during the session, if it just isn't practical to kind of fill those vacancies by the time Congress is set Or to maybe leave. it's not known. Maybe news of the vacancy reaches the chief executive uh, after they've gone into recess, even though it occurred before they left for recess. Right. So um, th- my point was simply that the language... Uh, of the provision is not itself cast in those functional terms. It's interesting to hear that the justices were uh, thinking that obviously there's a functional context that's being addressed. But it is it is interesting to me if if one is going to get fussy about the words, and of course, what do lawyers do sometimes? But get fussy about words. But if you're going to be fussy about the words, it seems to me worth noticing that it actually isn't written that way. No, it is. It isn't. You know, there's no. Uh, as you say, there are other clauses where we get a bit more information about the mischief that uh, the Constitution was aimed at. The, you know, the Second Amendment, the Copyright Clause, or two, which are famous for having right. as being some of the only places in the Constitution where we get a glimpse of the purpose directly in, in text uh, of the of the powers. And then other places or, or where you might not have a purpose prescribed, but but the language of the provision it does have a f- a functional character. Uh, again, unreasonable search, um, where you're where you're basically inviting the person. You know, you have to make a context dependent judgment uh, under all the facts and circumstances, and m- make a choice that's fit to those circumstances. Okay, so here, that's that's all fine, and maybe we're going to end up disagreeing on this, but uh, which will be great. But I think at, you're going to be driven to making a decision here about whether you think that what the Supreme Court should do, and, and that may be different than what you think was intended originally, or, you know, you have to have a, a you have to have an approach or a theory of what 
how the court should apply the Constitution to know how this should come out. One thing you might do is say that through longstanding practice, the branches have achieved an equilibrium. Uh, and a lot the, of people the think other it's not two. desirable. Yes, the, the well, the other two and the third, if you like, because some of these appointments go. To, but mainly oh, yeah, the other two, mainly this, mainly the Senate and the and the President. Uh, there's this equilibrium, longstanding practice. It would be kind of activist for the Supreme Court to come in and upset that equilibrium. Right. So that is maybe, my own personal view, by the way, of how the case should be resolved. But which uh, is, you know, it, it's similar to the um, political question doctrine. Yep. Which is the court should stay out of. Um, decisions which are committed to other branches it's not quite the same as it it seems to me uh, that this would be more saying uh, that there is a long-standing practice which has become now in a way the property of the executive and the uh, legislature to fight out Um, I'm not sure how well that works here but it at least is one way of looking at it it's sort of a settle it's sort of an idea of of constitutional settlement I mean it's the notion that uh, so for example uh, although the Constitution mentions an army and a navy and does not mention an air force, I think it would be insanity for someone to persist in the argument that uh, the air force is unconstitutional, uh, even without right. resorting to the notion that it is an air navy, which I suppose <laughs> you could try to make the argument. It's a navy that that uh, uh, goes through the air fluid right, rather right. than the water fluid. <laughs> uh, so you could try that. I just think that's silly. Constitutional fluid mechanics. I Correct. like it. But the... Correct. Well, uh, so, so this so is the other that's a settlement, right? The, it's we've yeah, long right. acknowledged that this is a that this is a uh, a, a pragmatic, uh, positive uh, use of power, and well within the ambit of what's contemplated in spirit, if not in letter. And so it's just foolishness to stamp the ground and uh, and resist uh, on the uh, no. My dictionary says the Air Force isn't covered. Well, that is of course the other approach here, and that is that the. Uh, under Marbury versus Madison, it's the Supreme Court's responsibility and duty to say what the law is. Uh, they are the ones who pronounce the uh, secondary rules contained in the Constitution and the application of those rules. And there is some text here, and it is up to the Supreme Court to determine what vacancy means, what right. may happen. Me- and so, what? But I like what, how you I, smuggled yeah. into. I like how you smuggled into the word law, uh, Marbury. What the law is. What, what makes you think we haven't just been talking about law? That we've been talking about. Uh, decades approaching centuries of settled practice between the political branches, uh, why on earth wouldn't that be respected as law? Uh, and indeed, you might have a theory that... Um, so it's not responsive to say, oh, well, but but my job is to say what the law is, and the law is exhausted by what the text says. Well, uh, right, so there, there are two... Under- yeah, right, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that there is a... Um, you, you might have the thought that the Supreme Court's duty is to interpret the constitutional text and say what it means for discrete disputes. Um, And that the cases in which the Supreme Court will allow some other branches to define the meanings of those words are few and far between, and only in circumstances where there is a, in the Constitution itself, some indication of a commitment of a decision to particular branches. And those are the political question type cases. Right. This may not be such a situation, though, where the Supreme Court is being asked uh, um, to draw not. to draw a line. There's a you know the, there's a power the president claims to have that the Senate says that he or she does not have, and um, the Supreme Court has to arbitrate that dispute. Um, some would say, and the way you do that is to look at these words, figure out what they mean, and apply it to this dispute. Yeah, uh, 
Fair enough. Which um, involves getting out dictionaries and having... Indeed. Well, it could, right? So but, one approach... But, but could also involve, again, treating uh, as very, very persuasive the settled practice, not as an explanation for why one ought not to arbitrate the interbranch dispute, but as evidence about precisely how best to arbitrate the interbranch dispute. That interpreting yeah, what it means right. is, as some evidence of what it means is how everyone's been acting about how it meant. Well, yeah, and I would... Um, and and I would use that in a maybe in a slightly different way, but against the argument that and and people are making this argument, right? That the words are perfectly clear. That the word vacancy is clear, happens is clear, all of this is clear, and all of it points to the president's not being able to do this. Uh, I would say that these the long settled practice should at least instill a sense of humility about our ability Absolutely. to speak authoritatively about what these words inevitably mean. And here's here's a here's a real worry that I have, and I don't mean to sound frivolous, although I may sound frivolous. Um, the kind of uh, lack of humility that might lead one to charge in and start whacking away at appointments made in in this particular recent set of historical circumstances on the on the ground of the interpretation of the text. Right? Oh, vacancy is clear. Happen is clear. No. Uh, so here's the next case in my mind, and uh, and an indication that this is going to be the source of uh, counterproductive mischief, right? So if we look elsewhere in the Constitution, we'll see, and you mentioned it at the very beginning of the conversation, you'll see this notion that the president makes appointments with the advice and consent of the Senate, right? Yeah. So... Uh, the settled practice is what that means is a nomination gets sent and does or doesn't get voted on, right? Uh, there isn't, I don't think, a strongly held belief that the president is precluded from nominating someone about whom he or she did not first get advice, Right, So the text says advice and consent. It speaks of two different things. At least you could make the arguments semantically. That phrase refers to two different steps, the advice step and the consent step. So can I now bring, if, if, the, if this case, is, if the Noel Canning challenger is successful and the president is not allowed because the, uh, uh, the uh, let's say the, the explanation for the holding is, uh, the the vacancy did not happen during the recess. Yeah, that would be a particularly robust and intrusive ground of the decision, I think. But um, rather than simply concluding they weren't actually in recess, which would be a more modest way of reaching the same holding. Um, yeah, they, I think they may do that. We'll see. Yeah, but but let's say the rationale were again, it didn't happen during the vacancy. Didn't happen during the recess. Uh, so you bring so isn't the next case well this person's appointment was unconstitutional because there is no evidence that before the president submitted the nomination he received any advice about whom to nominate uh, and until he receives advice from one or more senators about whom to nominate he's constitutionally forbidden to submit a nominee so anyone who was nominated even if they're later confirmed of course the confirmation would not cure this defect because the Constitution prescribes the process and its advice and consent, right? Yeah, right. So, so I, I just think, if, like, I hope that someone is thinking to him or herself, 
what does the world look like if I start accepting arguments of this form about the way the president and the Senate work through the process of the president's filling positions in the executive? Yeah, I see. Actually, you know, when I, when I first read this case coming out of the D.C. Circuit, I was not, you know, I'm just not of the same mindset. And so I was not at all impressed with the form of the argument in the case, this kind of getting out your your old dictionaries and trying to figure out what pe- what these words might have meant. It's uh, I'm not sure that judges are any better at um, at wordsmithing than they are at history. But uh, <laughs> I have to say my mind is kind of shifted a little bit on this. Um, cool. First of all, I think, you know, writing on a clean slate, knowing the um, Senate as an institution, it, I would rather have it be an advice and dissent rule so that um, the Senate can reject nominees if it acts affirmatively. Um, but if it doesn't do so, then the nominee is uh, appointed. Um, so that gets ri- that flips a lot of the, that gets rid of a lot of the problems that we have. Yeah. So, you know, you have to take, uh, if you want to reject a presidential appointee, you have to take some affirmative action. Uh, that's what I would do. Uh, but on the on the particular case, in the absence of being able to amend the Constitution, um, <laughs> I'm not sure it really matters. Uh, you know, I, it, it does upset the equilibrium to some extent, but we're at a pretty crummy equilibrium right now. The rationale matters. I, I, I think you might be right that the holding ultimately doesn't matter in in in... in a practical sense, uh, but the explanation for the outcome matters because it, if you're going to take it seriously in a run of cases. May, yeah. Now, maybe you don't, maybe judges never, not never, maybe judges don't often do that or don't, or sometimes don't do that. And so, so the rationale doesn't really matter either. Well, let me just to, to sum up what I think. I, I think that the, I've got no problem with saying that the Senate's declaration of when it is in session. Uh, maybe is a political question that the court can't invalidate, so it's not going to say that the Senate is not in session when the Senate says it is in session, and that the um, constitutional purpose of this clause, under kind of a pluralistic theory of how you interpret meaning in a constitution, whether it's from text or wherever else, but I think you know this was about being able to appoint uh, uh, people temporarily when Congress is gone, and I don't really have a problem with the court saying that the use in this case... Um, was not consistent with that congressional purpose. And I was somewhat surprised to come around to that point of view. And if you think about what's going to happen if you take away that presidential weapon, I think what will happen is that the filibuster will be gone for appointments. I mean, I just think that the pressure... Um, the, the, it in already, other words, the, it the presence of the recess... Yeah, it, I know, I know. I know. You're right, right. But, I, but on a longer-term basis. I mean, I think that the recess appointment... Um, an obstructionist party in Congress kind of relies on the recess appointment um, in order if if they value the government's functioning because they can obstruct without a lot of cost. Ah, so it's their hedge. Yeah, exactly. They know that the president will wind up filling the spot. If and, it really needs to be filled, it will get filled. And they, they get all the points for fighting the president and take none of the blame for shutting anything down because things will continue, but under the recess appointment. Right. Yeah, that's what I think. So I, I'm not sure that it really matters. And I'm not sure, and, and I do think maybe the best constitutional holding here, not having studied this in great detail other than reading through some of the briefs and reading the lower court opinion and listening to the oral argument. So that's basically the sum of my experience with this. So uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, 
that I think there are a number of interpretive theories that all point to the same answer. Mm. And that is that this is, you know, that this appointment was unconstitutional and that the recess appointment is restricted to eh, maybe true recess appointments or at least appointments made when Congress is not in session. I think the may happen language is a little bit more difficult. If a, so if there's a vacancy that arises when Congress is in session and then Congress is clearly not in session or there's an adjournment, I think the president can appoint a recess appointment then under that language. But um, Because it's more ambiguous or because... Well, I think the may happens language, you know, the vacancy may happen. I think it was... I see a functional reason and a textual fit with the idea that a vacancy could occur a week before Congress leaves town and that the language was still meant to reach the president's ability to maintain the functioning of the government while Congress was out of town. So it seems to me to make some sense. Um, but if that's... It, that, I hear you, and I think that's interesting and good. I do wonder, though, why that doesn't undercut the notion that we shouldn't second-guess Congress's assertion that it's in session. No, it doesn't. It, it, because it, they it, could say they're in session when they're not, when, when they really are all out of town, in, in which case they wouldn't be, as a practical matter, prepared to do the thing they would need to do, which is to actually all get together and take a vote. So why does, there, why does a pro forma session impede the president's ability to make sure that the government's functioning by the president's best lights, which is, after all, what he's obliged to do? I mean, I think the remedy for a Congress which does not do its job and prevents the president from doing his or her job is uh, political. But that yeah. seems to me to be an argument to, to, to not, to, to not uh, step in to the case, to, to say this actually, this is not an interbranch dispute that the court is well positioned to arbitrate. But it, the thing is, it, it will arbitrate no matter what it does, right? It will either give this weapon to the president or take away this weapon from the president. I mean, the, the president is unilaterally asserting the power to appoint someone when the Senate says that it's in session. When it's clear that they are trying to prevent the president from making a recess appointment. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just very hard to read that constitutional text as meaning to give the president leverage over appointments. It's just, it doesn't seem to have been its purpose at all. And I, and I don't think... And, I don't, and, and, I don't and to think be clear, I don't, think it's necess- I don't think it's a purpose necessary to the constitutional design either. So I'm not, I'm not an originalist at all. Yeah, nor do, nor do yeah. I necessarily, but it, but it seems to me that it's... You, 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 aren't, you don't have to commit to any vision of why it's there, it, I, I don't think, in order to reach the conclusion that the court isn't best positioned to referee the dispute that the the court can say look <laughs> you guys there was a long settled practice and this is best worked out by the other two branches in the light of that long settled practice so for example if the president insists that the senate wasn't in session and he nominates his nlrb member and that person shows up for the job and has taken an oath and is carrying out the job and if the congress really profoundly disagrees congress can use its spending power to bring that situation to a conclusion yeah they've done a little bit of that yeah and i mean they can impeach and yes i mean they're right so congress maintains some weapons to deal with this precisely so just it's just better not to get pulled in in this and i i I actually am not often 
of that conclusion uh in the in the con law stuff i've had the experience of teaching before that that's not that is not a conclusion i rush to reach actually but in this instance it seems uh genuinely plausible and and prudent to me in a way that uh sometimes it doesn't now we disagree cool Let's yay talk- oral <laughs> argument it really is an argument let's talk about something else yeah you seem bored i <laughs> i can't get going today why is that i don't, I don't it's know. sunny outside it is well we're here by the fire it's snowy outside. It's not snowy. Yeah, let's. It was. I can still see like some days patches, ago. I can still see some patches of snow. There are little bits of snow. It makes for better radio if we say there's. There's snow. more. There's more snow on your back porch actually than there is anywhere else. Yeah, that, that's you looked true. on your back porch. Yeah, I, know, I have. I, I'm not going right now, or they there. wouldn't hear me. Yeah, I'm looking out of the front through the through the windows, okay. and I see snow on the on the little hillside there, and um, it's it's a snowy day, and we're here by the fire. Yes. Because that makes, as I said, that makes for better radio. Uh, and <laughs> but there's a serious side of this. I, th- I thought we should talk about this meltdown in Atlanta that happened. Really? Y- you're surprised that I think we should talk about that? Yes. Why are you surprised? We why, why does that surprise you? Um, I I don't. Um, well, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about it. I don't feel particularly well equipped to discuss it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I have. If I don't, we only discuss stuff that we were well equipped to discuss, we would not have, you know. You raise I, an, I wouldn't have a job. You raise an excellent point. Um, what I meant by that is uh, that I, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any background or or expertise in uh, urban planning or transportation planning. Uh, I don't know uh, to what degree this relates to other choices that have been made in the past about how to configure Atlanta, how to deal with mass transportation versus uh, car transportation. All right, so a lot of good issues here. You're putting, um, you're, yeah, these are I, I've even issues. seen some news reports suggesting that there are uh, sort of collar County it, it, city of Atlanta contrasts and issues, uh, which of course have a, a history of uh, racial disparities and other issues um, so, so that that influences the way things have been playing out more recently in transportation policy choices. It just seems, I don't, uh, yeah, it was really bad. People let's were, say, yeah, let's people say people were stuck in their cars, and it was really bad. So we had right. So there was a weather report that came out, and and I was following this pretty carefully because I love snow days. Let me tell you, I do love, I do love me a snow day, <laughs> and and I follow the forecast discussion on the weather service. That's really, the only place to go. I I, I told one of my classes this. Yeah, said, don't don't go to weather.com or one of these things you go to the national weather service you click on the forecast discussion where the forecasters actually type out what they're thinking and they type nice. out what the models are doing and you can see and they you know they were talking about what a challenging forecast it was it yep. was really unclear what was going to uh, happen for a while but i would say you know it was there it seemed to be a consensus developing at least 12 maybe eight hours maybe 12 hours before it hit that there was going to be some snow yes. uh, up this far north uh we're in athens atlanta is about an hour west uh uh, a little bit higher than we are. Uh, I think they're at about a thousand feet, and we're something like three hundred feet here, or something. But um, so, uh, but they're also, you know, an urban heat island, and so it's interesting weather differences, but not much. Um, and I, they got a little bit more than we did. I guess they got an inch or two of snow, and there was some amount of ice involved. in a shorter period of time as well. I think they right. got more and in less time. 
yeah, and there was there was some amount of slush and ice involved, and it ten, and it covered their uh, uh, their freeways in some kind of slush, some kind of uh, snowy, icy stuff. Whereas here in Athens, we didn't get much covering the roads at all. We got patches of ice. Right. Um, yeah, there was very little accumulation on the roads, and and the accumulation that did happen off the road, it was actually reasonably powdery. It wasn't slushy. Right. So yeah, it was yeah. suggesting our temperature was lower. It might have been a little bit lower, or the onset was a little bit later. Um, there, I, I don't know. We'd have to go back and, and see. But um, uh, but in any event, the the weather hit Atlanta at a at a particular time in the middle of the day. People were hedging about whether to ha- you know have school or go to work at all that day, and they right. decided let's do it because it doesn't look like that much snow. Uh, and then at some point, uh, the call is made: let's empty the schools for the day. And I think and and, and send people home from the office. Send people home and, from the office, and all of that happened at the same time. Yeah. So and so everyone gets on the Atlanta freeways at basically the same time to get home as this stuff is coming down. Um, and disaster ensues, and and this is no joke. I mean, someone delivered a baby in the, you know, in, in the middle of the freeway, and there were at least some deaths. Right. Uh, I don't know how many of those were attributable to. I don't know if there were any deaths of exposure. I haven't really heard about that yet. But there were, I think, heart attacks where people couldn't get to them, and you know, so it was a really tragic situation. Yeah, definitely, and and dangerous. And I think uh, it it only takes a small number of traffic accidents to seize up a lot of the highways that are being used. And of course, this is a situation where there are going to be at least a few accidents. Well, that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit. Is the um, we take for granted um, kind of the transportation setup of a lot of our communities, especially car-dependent ones. Um, but this is actually a very fragile system. And I don't think we appreciate the fragility of the highway system quite enough. Um, you know, so you're, you're basically you're counting on all of these individual pieces of, of equipment to function more or less perfectly, um, else the system be completely backed up. By that I mean, you know, if you've if you got one car getting off and, uh, an exit ramp and it kind of spins out on that ramp. No one else is getting off of that ramp very easily until it's cleared. Uh, and you get enough of these happening and you get just total gridlock. Right. Uh, and in, that's not even talking about just the capacity, whether, whether the system can right. handle the capacity of everybody wanting to drive at the same time. Um, and it's worse than just blockage in the sense that efforts to clear the block can itself create more blocks that, that if you like, say the car is spinning out on the ramp and so it spins out and blocks. So some other people, let's say, try to stop and help and, and get that thing moved out of the way. Well, they, their vehicle being stopped might cause somebody else's vehicle to spin out or to get in an accident or so the fragility is, uh, cumulative and, uh, awful. Yeah, I think it, once the, things start going wrong, the problem is created by choices that we've made. The choice to locate twenty miles away from where you work, right, involves a certain amount of confidence in the ability to go between those two points, and that decision replicated over and over and over again uh, creates a very complicated web of dependencies. Um, yes, that can be disrupted um, quite easily um, in in ways that we don't anticipate. Indeed. And and that's kind of what happened here. The other thing I was thinking about here, the way that we experience our cities and our communities is increasingly abstract. And oftentimes that's a really good thing. And, and let me just say what I mean by uh, abstract here. Um, when you're going from A to B uh, in a city, when you're going from your home to your work, 
I think increasingly these days, and this is not, I'm sure this is not an original observation at all. I think um, this has been written about in various ways and in lots of places, but I, I'm just going to say it. Um, we don't experience the going from home to work anymore, really, as anything other than an abstract connection between two places. In other words, our community, our, the places in our communities these days are more logically connected than physically connected. We don't experience the landscape as we're going from one place to another. Um, instead, there's some, like, uh, uh, some mechanism that allows us to get between two places, and it just happens. So uh, uh, going to the grocery store, going to work, going to a school, right? You, you, you think of the logical connections between those places. This particular road, you know, I'll get in the car and I'll go on this particular road. Or if there's mass transit, I'll take this train. So, you know, mass transit doesn't, like, make these abstract problems any, any more real. Um, so what makes, what would be non-abstract walking? Yeah, I think, I think, so you have if to, there were no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it's, it's necessarily a, um, a bad thing that we've kind of abstracted travel in this way. Uh, walking might be, but if you're walking along a road, you're still thinking of, you know, you're just following a preordained, pathway true so a, a lot of our um you know a lot of uh what we do in modern life has been abstracted in the same way so that we don't think about them anymore right we don't think about you know what is my plan for getting to work you know it's not much of a plan you get in your car and you drive there right in the same way you don't have to have a plan for you know what to do with your sewage or your garbage right this or is your water i mean in a way this is the uh, the upside of infrastructure is or an upside of infrastructure is it engenders thoughtlessness right and, and therefore frees you up to think about other things that's right because i think it would be hell to try to figure out on a fresh basis every day i don't know i don't know from experience but my guess is it wouldn't be much fun to try to figure out fresh every day what to do about my human waste and what to do about how to get to a place where I was engaged in an activity for which someone was willing to pay me some money and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that just sounds horrible. It would be, it would take a lot to do it, right? It it takes a lot to think about those things. Right. And that means things you can't, that means other things you can't be thinking about. Right. So to free up the possibility to think about those other things, you have to make those first things not needing our thought. That's right. The, the infrastructure engenders productive thoughtlessness. That's right. And the same thing with the, uh, you know, buying things in a grocery store. Like people not knowing where their food comes from or the, where their water comes from or where their sewage goes or where their energy comes from. You know, when you flip on the switch, that's a logical thing. It is, you know, it's truly the most logical thing in, in, in terms of just binary logic. You know, it's either on or off. It's not like I have to go outside and and turn a generator handle, you know, like, Conan the Barbarian style and push a wheel around to make enough energy for this thing to happen. No, I just flip it on. <laughs> That's happening somewhere else. And I don't have to think about it. It's, right. So, so much of our lives involves, uh, um, uh, you know, disconnected from, from causes, from first causes, logical connections among things. Right. So it's uh, someone else has done work that I don't even have to think about. And I'm living my life on this platform of human innovation that I just don't have to dig into. It's like an object-oriented life, you know, where you just don't have to interrogate, like, how the transportation system works, right. how the food system works, how this works. I it's take a, it that was a reference to computer programming. Yeah. I'm not a computer science person, so but I've heard the phrase object-oriented yeah, I mean, in computer just, speak. I mean, you know, it's just a, a technique of, 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 not a technique, but 
a whole methodology, um, and maybe even beyond that, where you can write a program in such a way that you hide a lot of its operational parts from one another. So you basically think about one thing at a time. You can get one code is more interoperable. We're not going to go into all that right now, uh, another time maybe. But but the idea here has application, that you are, are living your life on a platform created by others where you don't have to think about most of the working parts of that platform. It's like having a watch where you can just look at the time on the watch, the hands, right? The the part of the interface which is exposed to you without having to under right. in, or, in order to read the time, you don't have to look inside and look at all the gears and figure out how they're all working, right? And yeah, make life inferences is this sort of in this life is the application layer, and you don't need to worry about the infrastructure below that layer. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and and that has you know a lot of virtue. It, it does. I think I've already suggested what some of it is, which is. That means you have the resources to do all those other things, your mental resources and physical time and stuff like that. And and I guess the reason I bring it up is because it also has a downside. Sure. And the the downside is that uh, among among the downsides um, is that we sometimes take for granted the fragility of this platform that's been created. And that's bad, just from a you know an emergency planning perspective. But yeah. it may also be individually bad. And I, you know, I I don't know if you're interested in hearing, but I I think that it helps sometimes to see things as they really are, uh, to appreciate in isolation the uh, the real structure that underlies these logical connections. And um, you know, my own life, I when I think about, it, I think one of the most important kinds of things I ever did was uh, time in the wilderness and mountain climbing. Where, and, and one of the reasons for that is that all of this whole platform goes away. Mm. Um, not entirely, and, it's, and you are acutely aware of, uh, of kind of standing on the shoulders of the rest of society when, you are, you know, when you're cold and you're getting into a synthetic bag or, or, or you know, a sleeping bag built by somebody else or you're you know, using some kind of space age fibers to keep the water out. So it's not as though you're going completely naked into the wilderness. And uh, some people do, but I didn't. Um, uh, so, so you are being kind of carried along by the rest of society. But your days can be, especially in the beginning, it can be disorienting, kind of consumed by, you know, the how are you going to eliminate your waste? How are you going to cook your food? You know, um, how are you going to shelter before it gets dark? And um and boy, there are a lot of things around here that are a little bit scary. Mm. And my experience was after a few days, uh, that tends to go away, you know, and especially after a, a few weeks, you, you know, you get into a rhythm and you just, you're able to do that stuff better. Um, sure. And certainly climbing high in the mountains where, you know, most of what you hear is just your own boots going into the snow and the sound of the ice axe going into the snow. There's something about that that is as real as it gets, right? Where the connection between uh, um, you and the rest of the environment and your life and and your existence and your non-existence become really kind of crystallized because everything is uh, so simple. The simplicity of it is just almost overwhelming uh, when you're when you're climbing. And I, that's been a really valuable thing for me to bring back into my everyday life. Uh, you know, and thinking about these problems. I think you see these platforms for, you can help, I think it helps to see the fragility of some of these platforms. It can help you think about what's really important 
um, because sometimes the um, the ornateness of these uh, um, systems on which we depend, you know, the artificial nature of them can overwhelm us, and we just kind of take them for granted. We think of them as background, and we don't think there's any way to change them. Mm. Uh, and I think when you've had that kind of experience, and other people may experience it in different ways, I'm just describing my own, um, you start to realize that, you know, everything can be, it could all be different. We could have built this in a different way. There are basic things that we need, right? We need to have a chance to be together, to be happy, to provide for our material needs. And there's not just one way to do that. There are a whole bunch of ways to do that. True. And our cultural decisions about that are revisable, maybe not the best. Um, uh, and so, like I say, certainly subject to revision. Um, and so I, I thought about that as, uh, um, as I saw this kind of horrific, um, well, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it politely, what happened in Atlanta, but it just, you know, it was a, an epic traffic, traffic jam that, you know, it was horrible. And why are we making the, why, why can't we revise our choices there? You know, why can't we rethink it? Um, now, that's just a, a, on kind of a basal reaction level. That's right. a stupid way to put it, but uh, what I, I that's interesting that you say why can't we? I haven't heard anyone say we can't rethink it, or I mean, we right. can if we want to. Yeah, I guess my point here is more that um, when people talk about correcting things, yes. here, correcting what went wrong, uh, I think it helps to see just how much could be revised. That this is may you know, in other words, we're not limited to uh, thinking of just buying maybe a few more. Um, snow pieces of snow clearing equipment. It's not just about adding a bit of frontage road. Sh- sure, we could do things completely differently in ways that would make us happier. Um, so it might be helpful here to uh, to rethink the whole platform. Yep. And and I and I say this not at, you know obviously someone for whom you know Atlanta style sprawl does not necessarily appeal. So I'll be upfront about that. You yeah. know, I, and I don't want to use this as a as an argument, you know, just to like another arrow in the quiver to say Atlanta ought to be more like New York or something. Because, you know, Atlanta needs to be its own kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have as much stake in that as someone who actually lives there. It just, Good it's point. a kind of car culture that doesn't appeal to me at all. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I don't want to just use this opportunistically to say I told you so or something because I, I don't know what their ultimate pattern of development is going to be there. And I know there are huge challenges to... Uh, mass transit there um you know i've taught this in land use before just in terms of the statistics uh in terms of density and 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 Mm. distance between dense locations um but boy would it be great to just think about what they have what they want and examine all of the existing assumptions about that you know why can't people you know even if atlanta will not become one dense urban core it could become five or six dense villages um more people could decide to live closer to where they work. Uh, And, and and the, you know, zoning laws could help facilitate that. I don't know that we want to get into zoning again without having Sarah Schindler back on front of the show. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I thought about that. I don't know what you think. Maybe nothing. Well, I hadn't thought anywhere nearly uh, as deeply as, as you obviously have. I, I suppose the, the only thing I would add to the list of things to reconsider is, at the very least, I would think you'd want to consider how to make uh, existing systems 
fail more gracefully. Yeah. I mean, that seems like the minimum that you would need to do. If you decided after right. a lot of evaluation or even a little evaluation that um, that you wanted to stick with a lot of what you were using, and people can reach conclusions like that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But if you reach that conclusion, I would think at the, <laughs> at the very least, you would want to try to figure out ways for um, for the the hard knocks to land a little less hard. Yeah. Uh, and to make so, so th- and I hope they do at least do that. Just making the system more robust if it's possible. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, so, great, failing gracefully your- is, that's a basic engineering or basic planning issue. Um, how can you build a system to fail more with uh, more gracefully, more more gently? Uh, and I think that's a, that is a way to be mindful about the fact that it is a f- ultimately a fragile system. Is right. You think because you know it's fragile, you think about its failure, and you think about how people will need to cope with it. Yeah. So even if you want this, you know, car driven culture, and you want to live way away from where you work, and and I don't know, there may be all kinds of virtues with that uh, uh, that appeal to people, and and. So I'm not to say that that you can't want that, you know. Uh, maybe maybe you do, uh, but but maybe there are ways to design highways, uh, to um, maybe buying more snow equipment. All of this, you know, you you may. It, all I'm saying is that I think we should be mindful, uh, or Atlanta should be mindful about what it really wants, and not let the complexities of change deter it from doing something which is in everyone's interest. And the complexities of change here, as other people have written, um, are the uh, overlapping jurisdictions. Right. Um, the racial complexities that, uh, to which you alluded when we started talking about it um, that have been a barrier to mass transit, but yeah. maybe a barrier to other forms of solution even besides that. So all of these things are, uh, um, can be, that, that's the kind of, that's the cruft of the platform. You know, those are the things which kind of distort the platform that people might right. want, right? right. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. I mean, we, you know, the choices leave their traces. And so when you've made when you have made those decisions in the past, they, they, they can generate obstacles to making a, a different set of choices. And, and which another way you could say it is um, you're gonna, you, you, there are costs that will have to be built into the next round of decision making if you decide to, that, that the first step is to undo X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, you know, nothing is free. So you'll have, <laughs> the cost of doing that is... Um, before you can then turn and do ABC instead of XYZ. Yeah. Well, that's, you built that in when you chose X, Y, and Z to begin with. Right. So it's a challenge. I'm going I'm to spitball here. You want me to spitball? Sure. Make it one big city, meaning all these outlying areas gather into one big city with one mayor, one point of accountability, and a city council. Change the zoning to encourage high density around five, six, seven cores invest heavily in transit between those cores, discourage other connections, which don't connect those cores. That would be my kind of overall vision in totally uninformed, my totally uninformed vision. So I'm just really trying to get people to write in and tell us that we don't know what we're talking about with respect to Atlanta. Cool. Um, but, you know, you've heard of all these towns that people say they're from, and they all turn out to be Atlanta. Right. right? <laughs> that is so true. Right. And so... Uh, yeah, because they're, they're, they, they are... Um, they seem to be... The, the local governance mechanisms seem to be designed to um, keep those individually identifiable areas from having to interact 
in a governance context right with people in the other areas right so it's like building tons of silos right even though they can be right next to each other right and i would you know i would put all my energy one suspects there is a history of race relations buried in that yeah, but let's, you know, the past is the past in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not yeah, one and to I don't say that. And I said suspect, but, I don't know. Yeah, but, I, you know, to look forward, just, I say, put all your chips on, you know, increasing density and... Yeah. busting in, down in the course. silos. Yeah. But and, it's funny that your first step was a political step. Yeah. Which was, uh, you know, get create a single government that embraces the entirety of the relevant geography and this is a typical you know kind of issue in law centralization leads to some increases in accountability yep but also concentrates power in fewer people right and And can lead to inefficiencies in that respect and right and and we're seeing some of that play out in new jersey with respect to infrastructure issues but the Uh, the state with the most powerful governorship in the united states and everyone seems to acknowledge that's the case um the, the governorship of New Jersey is an, a, an enormously powerful executive position, which can increase the kind of accountability, but it can also, if the person who's in that role is using the power for, for less than good ends, uh, can create these difficulties. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, if you concentrate power, you concentrate the, the, um, the sources of corruption, and so I think your corruption costs go up. Right. As well as concentrating the upside potential of accountable decision making right. that's focused on the right things that's right that's so right you, it's hard to get one without risking the other right now you know some might say well if you if you create one like system of government around the entire atlanta area well that's called the governor of georgia uh, <laughs> right because uh, it is sprawling bigger and bigger but i i think it's feasible and i think you know atlanta's problems are interconnected you know this the Atlanta region, the Atlanta yeah, metroplex. We should get some baseball fans to write in and tell us what's going on with this the stadium nonsense, right? Where they relocate right, within the Atlanta, Cobb County versus downtown Atlanta, blah blah blah. Right. Nor- normally, I mean, I think baseball teams rely on kind of uh, inefficient decision making and rent seeking behavior and everything between cities, right? Right. But now they're able basically to operate within Atlanta by playing off people against because one another it, because there's it, because governmentally it's not within Atlanta. Right, Governmentally, that's right. it is between two jurisdictions. Yeah, somewhere up the road. I don't even remember where they went. But Cobb County. Yeah, Cobb County. Um, that's Atlanta. <laughs> it's all Atlanta. Right, right. No, I'm with you. I understand. Uh, we should get some feedback on that and see what people think. If we keep this in. I'm probably going to cut all this out. Are you ready to start the show? Oh, my God. <laughs> I have another potential topic. Oh, okay. Boy, a long episode. What's up? No, well, this is about 15 minutes in. Oh, boy. <laughs> Got a lot of editing to do on this one. Apparently. Um, I was, so before we, uh, um, earlier today I was uh, looking at the Facebook. Are you familiar with the Facebook, Joe? I've heard of the Facebook. Okay. Um, and I was looking at. Um, have you seen this new interface? That, this, this thing called Paper? I actually heard some, you know, I was going to reflexively kind of bash Facebook, but I heard some good things about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. You were looking at the Facebook. Have you seen it? This paper? Paper? I watched the video about it. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't watch the video. I assume that it will bring me no closer towards uh, what what I really want from Facebook, which is for them just to show me all the status updates of all my friends in reverse chronological order. 
Yeah, it's not. That's all that I want. I want. <laughs> it's not know, gonna do that. Which is why Twitter is better. But unfortunately, a lot of my friends are on Facebook. Right. So understood. Uh, but no matter what I do, they can't seem to do that simple thing. Yeah. They but wanna, I diverted you from your main your main topic. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at something that Dolly Lithwick had posted, and I was thinking to myself, I would love to have her as a guest. That'd be great. It'd be great. I think we can call her a friend of the show. I don't know that she's ever listened, but she's a friend of mine, so friend yeah. of the show, Dolly Lithwick. Anyway. Ah, uh, tongue-tied there. Um, la, 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 la. I'm going to cut this out, too. Um, a lot of editing on this show, Joe. You were, <laughs> a lot of editing. You were reading something that she posted. I was reading something that Dahlia Lithwick posted, and I was thinking to myself, uh, I have a theory of Dahlia Lithwick. Oh, my God. And you want to share it with me and not directly with her? Well, I, you know, that was the thing. Should, should, I, should I wait until we can share it with her? I, I don't... I, nah. She might be embarrassed. Well, let's she do might this. be embarrassed. So let's, I have a let's theory. Call I want, it, yeah, let's call ahead. this the first. This is your first generation theory. Yeah, we can so revise your theory, it. All theories are revisable. Yeah. And so this is simply I'd a be way in trouble to, if they weren't. You want, you want to kick the tires a little bit on this right. theory. So this isn't your final version of the theory. No. This is just your preliminary thoughts about the right. theory. Right. Um, and, and the theory is, you know, what makes Dahlia Lithwick so great? Okay, that's the question. Wow. And I have a theory about, about what that is. Okay. Shoot. Um, okay. Did you watch Saturday morning cartoons? As a kid? Yeah. Yes. Did you watch Super Friends? I did. Yeah. Saw Star Wars? Of co- well, yes. Did I'll you ever be. eat a bowl of Cap'n Crunch? Uh, sure. Yeah. That stuff really hurts your mouth. The top of your mouth gets all cut up. Oh, does it? Yeah. When you eat Cap'n Crunch? I haven't eaten it in years. That's my recollection. Mm. Lucky Charms? No, I did not like Lucky Charms. But you, you know what Lucky Charms is. I know what it is, but I never had it because I think I ate one of the little marshmallow uh, figures and I, it just doesn't taste right. Oh, there's something wrong with you. I, I would sort through and, get, and, and, and try to get the, just the marshmallows out. Oh, bleh. Yeah, no. I wish we'd known each other as kids because ta- you could have had the marshmallows <laughs> and I could have had the little letters. Or the- You're talking about Lucky Charms as though they're circus peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I know what you mean when you say circus peanut, uh, and that stuff is gross. Well, that's, see, this is, this is part of my theory. That's gross. This is, are you with me so far? Are that you following what? me? I'm, I'm, I'm explaining my theory of I don't follow you. I have, to my mind, you have not even begun to describe what your theory is hmm. of Dahlia Lithwick. Did you have Star Wars figures? I'm just going to not answer you anymore <laughs> until you say something worth talking about. All right, well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Why don't you no, assert no, no, no. something? Don't ask something. Assert something. Joe, you got, we, we, we got to build some drama here. Uh. Uh, you know how, uh, so, so you get to, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, you're listening to some music, okay? You're listening to some music. And, and like there's, there's a part of the song that's so great, so great. And, you know, you love the song because of this part that's really great. And then there's another, and then, you know, they kind of, you think to yourself, boy, they should have ended it a little bit differently. Or I would have done that. Just, you know, it kind of has this kind of, maybe the song has this little jazzy bit that maybe your parents would like, but the rest of the song is really great. Or you watch a movie and like a lot about the movie is really great, but there are these strange cuts or this strange stuff. And it's like, boy, you know, uh, this movie is great. It could have been a little different. I would have done something a little bit different with it. It has a feel to it that is um, uh, just a slight bit foreign to me, right? And I think... As you get into your 20s, all of a sudden, there start to be movies that kind of fire on all cylinders. And the songs start to be, boy, that, 
you know, there's, there's that, that's exactly right. You know, there, there wasn't this bit, you know, there wasn't this uh, um, one bit I liked and this other bit that I didn't, right? And what's happening? It's people like you, people who grew up eating Captain Crunch and had Star Wars figures. They had all this stuff, all this shared cultural experience. They're now making the stuff, you see. Mm. You see, they're the ones doing it. Right. Right. And so um, they thought too, boy, that, that bit of that song was awesome, right? Or, you know, so, so it's like, um, um, oh, I don't know. Think of the, the band that grew up, like Nirvana, was it, was it Nirvana, I think? They, Here's they, the problem they, grew, they grew up listening to both uh, punk rock and R.E.M. Here's the problem with your theory is it's well established uh, that what turns out to be the, the music you enjoy the most throughout your adult life is the music that you were really fond of as a high schooler. So you're actually a little off here in your... Right. Well, that's, that's when you develop a sense of identity around that stuff, right? But when you get into a... Uh, w- w- when you um, uh, get a little bit older and people who had that shared experience with you start making music, it feels right, right? It feels like you. It feels like you appreciating the music maybe that you liked as a high schooler, mm. right? You know what I mean? And, and so here's, here's the thing. Here's my theory of Dolly Lithwick. When she starts writing for Slate and writes these Supreme Court dispatches, and I'm reading them as a law student, um, um, I, I went to law. I, I went to law school kind of as an old guy already. But um, uh, but here's the thing: so you you read reporting that occurred before that, and it told all the facts. And like you know, if you're interested in Supreme Court stuff, you're reading it and you're appreciating it and everything. Right. And then like seemingly like dropped from you know dropped from the heavens or something like that. You know, out of Mars comes this completely different way of writing about it. Right, writing about what the Supreme Court does, and I'm reading it in law school. And I'm thinking, you know, that's what I would say. Mm. That's how I think of this court, right? And she's, you know, it's it's not just the, you know, just the snarkiness of those uh, of her earlier columns. It's the whole approach. Like, so she is like, um, uh, for me, right, in this field, is like she's one of us writing about this. You know, she. I don't know. She watch Star Wars or ate Captain Crunch or any of these other things, right? But she is uh, um, the same kind of, you know, she is the product of the same culture. And as we get older, right, our, you know, my kids already, like they're growing up on different stuff. They don't even have Saturday morning cartoons anymore. They don't have them. And uh, the music's all different. They, um, they don't eat the orange Kraft macaroni and cheese. They eat that Annie's stuff. Mm, you know what I'm talking about? I, I do. Everything's going to be, and so everything, so the stuff that we are producing now, they listen to it or they watch it and they say, yeah, that's really, you know, they'll get into it, but you just know they wish there was a slight tweak. You know, I would have, you know, put this together differently because it reminds me of this other thing that I'm growing up on. I'm a different cultural product than you are, dad, right? And one day their stuff is going to be ascendant. They'll have a different Dahlia Lithwick. That's what I'm saying. True. So that's my theory. The right person for the right generation. Okay, I like it. You don't have anything else to say other than that? Well, I can report that it is, I I too, I won't say I too, I, because I don't know whether you would say this, I do, when I read her uh, reporting and comment about a case at the court, I do feel like it, it lands with so much more oomph and is feels so much more satisfying uh, than 
you know, a a Nina Totenberg or a Linda Greenhouse or no, no disrespect. Oh, di- obviously, I'm not all of them friends of the show. They're all friends of the show, of course. Yeah. But you know, or Lyle Denniston or what, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who reported on the court and and ha- and still do and are excellent. But as you say, they're they're a they're a product of a different time and therefore a different culture. And so it doesn't quite have the oomph that it does when, yeah, you're reading someone who whose experience is more nearly our own. I think, too, that that's why um, I think that people probably go through a similar experience in terms of when the when the president in the United States is finally someone of about your age. Right. Uh, and uh, this feels like Obama for for me. Well, right. I think he's older than I am, but not by much. Correct. Yeah. And and he's uh, uh, a little older than me too, but uh, again, not much. And so I feel like we're we're kind of at we're reaching that age where we're lining up with national political figures in the same way that we're lining up yeah. with national media figures. Right. And uh, like it's our culture now. Yeah. Or like you know because we're you know it's it's your your cultural peer group is now um, in editorial decision-making positions. Right, they're making products, right, and and uh, and it's funny because and, I, and we're evolving culture, you know. So that's why it's, it's it's not that any other Supreme Court writers were not great. They were great. They still are great, right? right? Even of different generations. It's right. just that she's tweaked it in a way. You know, it's like never going to be quite the same. Yeah, and the word, sort of the word choices, the imagery, the, right. the the connections that are getting made, the 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 way it's all kind of getting put, beginning, middle, and the end. The sense together. of playfulness and pulling back the curtain. You know, our generation, I think, really wants to pull back the curtain, and, yeah. and she does a lot of that, and she grounds right. it in reality. I remember when I was in law school, she you know uh, wrote that one about where the when, this is when the justices were meeting in the D.C. Circuit um, because of the, I think the anthrax scare. And she described just how they walked up. You know, they didn't come uh, uh, from behind the magical red curtains of the of, the Supreme of, Court of their marble temple. Instead, yeah. they were having to walk up uh, this, I don't know, some platform or something. I don't remember. And she just described how old they all looked, right? Mm. That they, you know, she, she humanizes them in a right. way, right? And that, there's something about our generation you, which wants that. Did you graduate from law school after the year 2000? 2002. Okay. Sometimes I forget that. You and I are a few law school cohorts apart. That's because of my gray beard. Yes. Yeah. I'm only 30 years old. <laughs> I look like I'm 65. You're not only 30. Not 32. Are you really only 32? You're kidding, right? No, 33 maybe. Oh, there's Darcy. Is this like you're going to edit okay, this okay, out? Okay, okay, okay. I'm 34. <laughs> how old are you really i don't care how old you are really that's not the point 41 the point is, <laughs> the point is because we may or may not have started law school at, at whatever point in our own personal lives but the the point is we graduate when did you graduate from law school 2002 and then you're being honest when you say yeah that. no i really am i'm 41 okay. years old i graduated in 2002 and okay. i did i did a i did a graduate work before law school right so i Graduated from law school in 1994, uh, so eight years before you did. Wow, yeah. 
Wow. What does that mean? No, it just seems like, you know, seems like a long time ago. <laughs> it is. You know what's funny is it's 20 years ago. This this coming spring, it's yeah 20 years since I went to law, which is kind of crazy to think 20 about. years ago that that happened. And back when you were eating Captain Crunch as a five-year-old, a 20-year-old seemed like an old dude. It didn't seem like was. <laughs> I mean, when you're five, that person's four times your age. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. 20, 30, 40, they're, they're just, it's an adult. Who cares? Right. They're and just, you know, different from you. Right. Yeah. Uh, quite, quite accurately perceived to be. Um, how did we, so Dahlia. No, you were saying uh, you graduated in 94, I was 2002. So, so there, so for me, she was not, I was not reading her in law school. Right. Um, there wasn't a world wide web when I was in law school. Like yeah, the Mosaic right. browser happened as I was leaving law school. So yeah, yeah. all of this is post education. It was in my practice life and in, in, in clerkship life and practice life, et cetera. Right. So I don't, I don't have that experience of reading her in law school. I would have loved to be able to read her in law school. But what was really cool for me as a, as a somewhat older law student, I mean, I went into law school when I was 27, which is that you know, mm. a weird age for Right. And for I was only adults. 23 uh, when um, I started law school. Yeah, so. I was 27. So when I was there in law school, I, you know, yes, I was in law school then and she had graduated a while back. But we were, you know, it felt very much like we were of the same culture. Yeah. And part of that is because I was in law school a little bit. You know, I think I was reading her when I was like 28, 29. I had my second child the second year I was in law school. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, you know, it was the right place um, to, you know, it, it felt like, um, you know, there is a theory of just ideal readers uh, for every writer, right? There's a... Uh, yeah. And you've, that you've given a version of that, actually. Right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I enjoy her stuff tremendously, and I and I think you're right that it it is about the person who is in a way standing in your shoes. I mean, it's funny because it's a kind of uh, it's an enjoyment that comes from not having to be empathetic <laughs> as a reader, right? Yeah, yeah, she's the most she she's so much more like us than than a. Nina Totenberg or a Linda Greenhouse or a Lyle Dunstan or what have you that I don't, it doesn't take as much of an act of imagination on my part to put myself into that person's views as an author. Right. So it's a kind of enjoyment that's a kind of lazy enjoyment. It doesn't make it feel late. It's, I'm not saying it feels like laziness. I'm just saying it takes, there's less of an act of imagination required to read her with that full understanding and enjoyment that you can get because you feel like it's a, it's a, great version of your own voice if you were at the top of your game and at the top of your perception right and uh and so that's really a special kind of fun i, I guess that's right and, and i think you you get things from reading um someone of of your culture uh that that, that aren't said right in the same way that you know when i I think I get that too when I read David Foster Wallace, you know, mm. Infinite Jest was so tragic. Yeah. I mean, it's just um, like, you know, he was, I, I, you just feel like, you know, you feel this connection because of all the cultural similarities and right. just, you know, you can almost, you know, very tragically just relate to his mind. And, and the same thing, you know, I listen to Radiohead. I feel the same way. I mean, you pick your favorite band or whatever speaks to you. Right. I mean, there, 
you hear things in it or read things in it or see things in the film, whatever your medium is, uh, that maybe, maybe it's a kind of laziness, but they're just so obvious, right? They're so, they're so striking because of that shared cultural experience. Um, and yeah, this is not at all. This is not at all to diminish. Like laziness is so the wrong yeah. word. It's well, that what, was a terrible word choice. It's it's a relaxation. It, yeah. It's 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 effortless. And, and because and, they don't right. need empathy, they you you have so much similarity to their child experience and your childhood experiences that it's a it's a relaxed enjoyment. Let me let me make one amendment to this though. Okay. If I may, because I don't because I think. When I say shared cultural experience and we're talking about how our appreciation as being, you know, an empathy or what have you, it makes it sound as though uh, the reason we think these people are so great is because of all the unspoken things that we share. And, and I'm not, that's, that's too simple. I'm really just saying that um, uh, these are people of our generation operating at the tops of their chosen fields who are leaving a mark, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, leaving a mark that who, who knows where it will be taken in the future. You know, our children will come in and do something a little bit different and they'll leave their mark. But, but this is the way that, that fields evolve, right? And it's just really exciting and, and there's something that feels great when like one of you uh, uh, makes a mark in another, changes it, right? When your movies start to be made, when your music starts, you know, when your um, sensibilities start to be reflected in various products or in different kinds of writing. And um, anyway, I think it's exciting. That's my theory of Dahlia Lithwick. Cool. What else do you want to talk about? Nothing. The only feedback we've really gotten is that people want to see a picture, <laughs> that people want to hear more from the dog. Yep. Which I don't know if that's really a compliment. Yeah, it might We'll not. have to ask Van Hoof and Stampin whether that's a compliment. Yeah. Uh, and then we did get an email, though, didn't we, Joe? We did. It was a great email. It was about uh, how great it is to listen, how fun it is to listen to the podcast. So that's cool. Yeah, that was cool. I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm shocked. I th- I'm pretty sure that was from my mother. I'm not shocked. I think this is good. Mm. All right. 